Hi, I'm Jamin. You're listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast. My guest today is Steve Mast, President and Chief Innovation Officer at Delvinia. Founded in 1998, Delvinia is a Canadian-based group of companies that provide consumer insights and data collection solutions, including Delvinia Custom Solutions, Asking Canadians, Asking Americans, and Methodify. Prior to joining Davinia in 2000, Steve has been a video game producer, architectural designer, and entrepreneur. Steve, thanks so much for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. Thanks, man. It was great talking to you again. This episode is brought to you by SurveyMonkey. Today, almost everyone has taken a survey, but did you know that SurveyMonkey offers complete solutions for market researchers? In addition to flexible surveys, their global audience panel and research services, SurveyMonkey has launched a fast and easy way to collect market feedback. They have seven new expert solutions for concept and creative testing. With built-in customized methodologies, AI-powered insights, and industry benchmarking, you can get feedback on your ideas from your target market in a presentation-ready format. And by the way, in as little as an hour. For more information on SurveyMonkey's market research solutions, visit surveymonkey.com slash market dash research. That's surveymonkey.com slash market dash research. Mention the Happy Market Research podcast to the SurveyMonkey sales team before June 30th for a discount off your first project. So the world has changed. It is March 27th, 2020. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But before we do, let's set some context. Tell us a little bit about your parents and how they have informed what you do today. Sure. Well, first off, my mom actually, she worked at the local hospital. She was a ward clerk. So she was a frontline staffer, if you will. So first and foremost, hats off to all the frontline folks right now that are dealing with this crisis that we're going through right now. So big shout out to them. My dad was in banking pretty much so for 37 years, if I've got the years right. But he really loved to work with his hands. He actually didn't uh, really love banking. But back then, you were either a doctor, lawyer or banker. That's kind of what you did when you got out of school. But he loved to create, particularly build like furniture, homes, he built huge parts of our cottage. So he loved to work with his hands. And they both were really good at design, particularly they were very crafty, very resourceful people. So I think I kind of inherited a lot of that from them. Obviously, when I got to school, I had no desire to be in banking. Hence, I had kind of this sort of interesting career path, which I sort of referred to as sort of a squiggly line versus a straight line. Had really no idea other than I loved design, took architecture, realized probably don't want me designing buildings because I think they would fall over. But I was always really good with digital, with computers, things like the internet were sort of starting to come about at that time. My parents were super, super supportive in all my sort of creativity activities, uh, got heavily into doing things like 3D animation, all these kinds of crazy things, particularly in university. So I got really good with ones and zeros, maybe not so much with hammer and nails. And so that really kind of shaped who I am in my career. So you've been with Davinia now Gosh, almost two decades, right? Yeah, 20, 21 years. Yeah, 21 years. That's amazing. So prior to that, Microforum, I believe is the name of the company, as That's director right. of yep. operations. Yeah. Yep. And that was the video game company. Why the transition from video game company to market research? 
Uh, you got another podcast for that? <laughs> that's a big question. Uh, but that's a, it's a big, it's a big change. Yeah, it is a little bit. So a couple things. One is that organization actually went through a lot of transformation as well. I think everywhere I picked in my career, I think I really learned to adapt because every one of those organizations seemed to transform. So it went from video games into becoming essentially a marketing agency, essentially is what it became and started to bolt on more internet marketing related activities. Because at the time we were still, I'm going to kind of date myself here, but we were very much into the sort of CD-ROM, DVD, kiosk kind of development things. We were always in digital activities, but they were sort of more physical activities versus today where everything is sort of online and cloud, those kinds of things. But the video game thing taught me something really interesting. And this is kind of where it ties into market research. I got really into game theory. So I wasn't classically trained as a game producer uh, at the time, I don't think anybody was, but I understood how people interacted with the world because of my architecture days and some of the things I learned about how people flow in and out of things and sort of how more around people's behavior is really what it came down to. And I was always really fascinated with that. In fact, I took an anthropology class just as a fun thing. I didn't even know what anthropology was, to be honest, like that's how naive it was. And uh, I absolutely loved it. I was like, this is the coolest thing. And I kind of, if I were to do over, I think I probably would have done that. I just love studying cultures and people and how they interacted with things. So I parlayed a lot of that into the video game design side of things. And then as sort of went through kind of its transformation to a marketing agency, and then eventually coming over to Delvinia, which we did a lot of in the early days, really it was about customer experience design, digital strategy, those kinds of things when we first started. A lot of that kind of translated easily over to that. But the thing that it was stuck me with was this idea of understanding game theory. And it's interesting now when you look at a lot of the AI engines and a lot of the simulations that are being built, like games are basically just giant simulators, right? That's essentially what they are. And what's interesting is when you think about it, a lot of what market research are trying to do, you're trying to get a, a point in time, but you're also trying to either simulate or uh, predict out where people are going to go, right? You're trying to make some trend predictions on things. So there's a lot of similarities between those or a lot of parallels between those areas. Z Johnson and I started reading a book about on game theory. Actually, when I think we made it through two because I actually hadn't been exposed to it until, gosh, the last five years, never formally. It's super insightful in terms of unlocking the application of market research. I mean, you you understand it, but when you gamify what we do, all of a sudden it like adds another layer of texture into the lens of the why and then the subsequent application of that, of the insights. Yeah, one of the, one of the really interesting things is when you're architecting a game, uh, I'm going to kind of date myself a little bit because a lot of the games I worked on at the time were uh, referred to as turn-based games. I know I'm really going to date myself. There was games like Myst and things like that. and I mean, super popular still. Yeah, like, right. Turn-based games. Yeah. Right. So those games are based around, you know, adventure. And so, uh, you know, it really is about how you architect and how you kind of lay out this path and think about how the user is ultimately going to flow within this, right? So uh, a lot of that is you have to really do your homework on this stuff. Like it's not something, and, and when you think about research, that's what you're really doing. You're doing a tremendous amount of understanding and studying behavior, consumer behavior, but understanding behavior. And then you're trying to lay out a plan or a strategy around 
uh, how people are going to flow through that, whether you're selling something or whatever you might be doing service design or something like that. So the parallels are fascinating. They really are like a, a huge fan of it. And now again, with AI, we've actually uh, invested in a company called Persona Panels and their underlying technology is a company that basically worked game development. And they used to do simulations for the defense department in terms of kind of, you know, like, hey, if we went into this community and wherever, and we were to do the following activities, I'm talking about the U.S. government, do the following activities, what would that look like? So they would simulate these things. So now we've taken that same technology in this company, Persona Panels, is using it to create essentially virtual people that react in the same way. So you can pump in all kinds of different scenarios, like ideas or whatever into it. Maybe it's new product ideas, new marketing ideas, and then it'll simulate how people will react to it, which is fascinating. So I actually think I've, I've talked with them. Were they based out of Tel Aviv originally? The Persona Panels is out of New York, actually. Okay. Then no. Different, I would different. say Persona Panels is kind of the, let's call it the front-end agency. So the people that run it are very much so market research folks. And then the technology used is a company called Tanjo. And the gentleman that runs Tanjo, he's the one who comes out of sort of this gaming background, but he's done all kinds of various different artificial intelligence. It's a whole subculture, the whole uh, artificial intelligence community, machine learning. Like there's an entire group of people that kind of run with each other and they're super smart, super geeky people. Like you literally just, you know, they want to be locked in a dark room and fed pizza under the door because they're doing crazy <laughs> stuff. But uh, that, that's the group that's that is really from them. Yeah. There is a group out of Tel Aviv. You're right. Uh, there's another one that is doing some really interesting stuff related to uh, leveraging game theory as well. So March 2027 is today. 2020. Crazy, right? Our world is just as different. And the topic that we're going to be diving into now is like making the transition because you guys have office space. So Mm -hmm. what does it look like for you guys? I assume all your employees are now working from home. We kind of decided to get ahead of the game. So on March 16th, we actually implemented our work from home strategy. And it was a little bit, we, you know, we kind of sensed it was coming and it was going to happen. And to be honest, you could feel it in the office. Like I remember on the Friday, you could sense people were getting nervous and concerned and you know it's incredible how much the media has just ranched it up like crazy now in terms of how much information is out there so people were concerned you could feel it in the office like it was so we quickly over the weekend as the exec team started implementing saying okay let's put into play our work from home strategy and policies went really smooth you know obviously there's always a couple little hiccups here or there part of it is because most of our technology and most of the things that we implement are all in sort of cloud. They're all digital based, you know, so, you know, we're pretty much a, we're a virtual company anyway. We just happen to all be in the one office. I will say the one thing that was super, super helpful in all this. And if there's any piece of advice that I can give to organizations out of this, especially any organizations that's managing data and security is, we went through the ISO 27001 certification about a year and a half ago. We started the process. It's painful, especially if you're a, we consider ourselves a very agile, innovative company. 
but you know, there's a lot of challenging things you got to change, but it forces you to really get your business continuity plans in place. So the minute something happens and we were thinking more like data breaches and, you know, like what if we have, you know, wars and, you know, you're kind of thinking about those traditional sort of things and pandemics weren't necessarily one of the things, but all the same things come into play. So when a lot of it relies on what's your IT infrastructure, how do they react? How do your employees maintain a level of security while they're at home? What's your VPN setup like? How fast can you implement it? You know, where's your data stored, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that was a tremendous help. That was able to, we were almost able just to kind of, it was like a playbook, right? We just opened it up mm. and everybody just kind yeah. of followed the, followed the playbook. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true and a really good point. And, a, and, a, and also a, still a point of differentiation in the market. Mm-hmm. What is the biggest issue that your employees faced when, or employees in general face when making the transition to work from home? Yeah, so you know what, that's, I've actually had this question like three or four times. As I think I mentioned to you, like I seem to be having these same conversations every day with people, but it really hasn't been work-related because what we were just previously talking about and the fact that a lot of our systems and processes were already there and we could quickly sort of pivot and move into those things. The big things are personal things, which we were just talking about our kids, right? And just, you know, having safe spaces in your house where the kids are kind of in that corner and you're in that corner and everybody kind of has their workspaces. And mental health, I think, is a massive thing. As, as we all know, it's been something that everybody has been, you know, there's been a huge amount of awareness recently about it, the last few years about it. We have our own anxiety issues in our house, but, you know, just the general stress of being at home, that just the the overall change and and how to deal with that. Kids in general, I mean, like, you know, you got a Zoom call going on and, you know, you got five or six or 10 people on a call and, you know, you see two or three people, their kids are climbing all over them. And like, it's just the new norm, right? And you just have to be okay with that. And so I think that's been the big thing is just really being able to deal with people's personal issues and being very patient and understanding and having a tremendous amount of empathy in a very, very stressful time that everybody is at a different point in time with this. So that's probably been the big thing that we've been facing with employees. Oh, I will say too, just as it popped in my head, scheduling has been a really interesting thing. So maybe this is just me. I don't know if you're feeling the same way, but maybe this is just me, but I'm very much so of something pops in my head and I'm, I barely sit in my office. I don't even know why I really have an office, although don't tell Adam I said that. You know, <laughs> I love to pop it in my office. I get something in my head. We have a very open format in the office space, but and I've got kind of my innovation crew, my design crew, my development crew kind of close to me. And I'm able to sort of bounce out and say, hey, guys, I've been thinking about this thing. And then you flip open the whiteboard and you kind of draw it out and talk about it. Really hard to do that now, right? Like it's, you know, hey, you send out a text, maybe a Slack request, set up a Zoom meeting, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you kind of you have to do all these different things now in order just to communicate I just have this simple idea. I just want to communicate. What do you guys think? Right. And those ideas often are the things that massive ideas, like you need a thousand of those little ideas that become the whopper. So I'd say, you know, we're very much so into just operational mode and we're not trying to disrupt that. But my role as being sort of chief innovation officer, I'd say has been probably the most challenging, even the more I just think about it as I'm talking to you in terms of being able to sort of keep moving those ideas forward. Because right now, to be honest, nobody really wants to talk about new ideas. Everybody's just trying to find a new normal. So 
Maybe, maybe the biggest employee issue is maybe it's me. Maybe that's the biggest issue. <laughs> the point of disruption about like, uh, you know, kids climbing on other people and all that sort of thing. I feel like there is a lot more like, I get it, it's okay, as opposed to before that would have been inappropriate. And so that's positive. I would say that the sense of isolation is a big problem. Like even, you know, for me, and I have a full household, I'm getting a little bit like, gosh, it'd be nice to go out with some friends and have a beer. And then I have one of my good friends and uh, he and I work together, Eric Santos. You know, he's a single guy. While he has family locally, everybody's isolated, right? And so he's stuck in his apartment and, you know, he's working, but he can't date. Uh, there's just a lot of, you know, you know, in that way, I think there's this like a large portion of our population that is literally isolated by themselves and, and you know, and the, the difficulties that, you know, can be associated with that and, and then how you deal with it. So what do you see as a key tool that you would recommend a company to use to help increase the overall connectivity across the organization? Yeah, before I get to that, I just want to go back to what you're saying about because I agree with you that isolation thing. I have my grandmother is 102, so now she's obviously in an old age home, and you know, we're we're praying that that all sort of works out okay. Because obviously they're very vulnerable. Uh, my parents are in their 80s. Even the two of them are, you know, I mean, they get along-ish. <laughs> you know, at 80, they have to get right. along, I guess. But just that isolation thing has been something that's been really top of mind, and it's interesting. You know, one of the things my friends, I was kind of alluding to the story before with you, but a group of my friends, we've been getting there and we do this like scotch night and uh, we, we used to do it sort of quarterly and it kind of went sort of twice a year and everybody would go to each other's house and, you know, someone would, you know, make steaks and you know go to the next house. And so we would do that sort of in a rotation. That group is actually doing Zoom meetings and it's actually continues to grow. And it's interesting to say about that, some of the folks that are on that Scotch meeting, if you will, are alone there and this is their outlet. And it's really interesting. Like those, those discussions sometimes will go for, you know, like it's kind of like just Zoom is running in the background or FaceTime is just running in the background and they're just like happy to feel like they have some kind of human connection, right? So so I think just on that isolation board, I think it's like, if you know somebody, even if you don't know them really well, I think one of the huge things right now is just reach out to them, say, hey, how are you doing? It's amazing how many people will just be like all over that. I think that's a that's a huge, huge thing. Sorry, to answer your question, sorry, the uh, key tool. Yeah, like, you know, we're using all the normal stuff, Zoom, Slack, we got chat rooms going all over the place. The Thoughtify has been a really key tool, I think even internally has been a great sort of mechanism for obviously our clients are using it, but it's been a really great mechanism because it is obviously in the cloud. So, you know, there's lots of those kinds of things. Our VPN obviously has been really important. You know, anybody that's running a small organization, you know, it's really important. You've got VPN set up ahead of time to be able to manage work from home. But I'd say less about a key tool. I'd say for us, it's been kind of more two things around how are we managing or what key things are we doing to manage the organization and sort of the people in general. So the two things are one is increased monitoring and regular communication. That's a massive thing, right? So like we are obviously doing our virtual halls and we have a daily executive standup, which is interesting because the exec would meet like once a month, go over the numbers, do our thing, like typical sort of organizations do. We're doing it daily. I got to tell you, there's nothing like a crisis 
that really, really make sure that you know what your key performance indicators are and how to manage those things. Because what metrics matter, because that's all you can focus on right now. So in our daily standups, we focus on those, you know, four or five key metrics, which is really the health of the organization. And then we're discussing other things. And then um, Adam, our CEO, he sends out a company-wide email and he does it in a very light, fun way. So he sends that out to everybody and gets great feedback about all the things we're going on. We're very transparent about everything from the number of leads coming in, the number of proposals being written, the health of the business, where I don't even know if we were that transparent before. We would do, you know, once a quarter, we would do town hall meetings and let everybody know. We do Monday morning meetings where everybody gets together. But this has just created tremendous amount of communication. And it's very two-way, right? Like there's lots of feedback from the staff. So increased monitoring and regular communication, that's one. The second one is, how do you virtualize your culture? So this is something I think where you're kind of tapping into and you're talking about, you know, when you're working from home and all of a sudden now, you know, culture is something that people sort of, bumping into each other and hanging out and talking in the lunchroom. And like, I, I believe sort of culture just kind of bubbles underneath. And I know a lot of people believe it's sort of from the top down and it is the tone is set for sure, but a lot of it is just how people work together. So how do you, and we have a very, how do you say it? It's, we have a very lighthearted, I think we've got a fun culture. Maybe not everybody would agree with that. I think we do. We definitely have very creative things. We're doing this rock, paper, scissors thing right now. Yeah, I'm, I'm scheduled to do that with the marketing director of Vox Pop Me on Monday, and I will win. Oh, per- oh, Jen. Oh, amazing. Oh, okay, awesome. So that's been, I think we've done two, two. Yeah, we've done two right now so far. We have another one today. So basically, it just it came out of Raj, who's our chief revenue officer. He was like, oh, it's too bad about the NCAA. And you know, he's a big basketball fan. So is Adam. And so he came back with this idea of like, what if we create brackets and what if we create a game and why not? So it's just a, and we really were going to do it internally. That's really just going to do it for the staff. And then we were like, no, let's extend this out to everybody. Like, why not just make this a fun community thing? And so it's really important. That's an example of our culture. We do these kind of impromptu things all the time, right? Like Adam sends out Friday memes. He started doing this like a few months ago. And if you know Adam, which I think you do, he has quite the personality. And his memes are representative of his personality and, and they become sort of a little sort of traditional thing. Now he's sending them out almost daily. And it just keeps the tone of the organization in a light, fun way. And people are commenting like, you know, I was having a really stressful day and then I got your meme or I logged into the rock, paper, scissors session today and got a real chuckle out of you know, like it's things like that. So I think virtualizing your culture is, is something that's quite challenging. Uh, and to keep that going is something that we've, we've been keeping. So those are the things I would recommend. Just increase your monitoring, make sure that communication is going in there, make sure your culture, you can maintain it during this time. There's two things that come to mind, right? One is the biggest problem that organizations face. A lot of times it's, they think it's revenue, but I really believe it's organizational clarity. And that is, you know, keeping the team in line with where the company is actually going. Oftentimes, the team is operating six months or even farther behind where the CEO and his op- head is. And, you know, the executive team is even usually a few days behind that CEO brain. And, you know, just the 
the virtualization that you're describing, all of a sudden it requires this discipline around communication that we just don't necessarily have to have when we're around each other because we can leverage things like biorhythms and whatever, you know? You can see if Adam is upset. You don't have that visibility anymore. And so now all of a sudden, you know, the opportunity for the CEO to be able to, and the rest of the team, you know, from quite literally the entire the entire gamut to communicate is just like, it's leveraging tools like whether it's, Slack, I mean, Slack's a really good one. One of the companies that I'm doing some consulting for, they have an emotions channel and they have for since their inception inside of Slack. And it's a 100% remote culture company. They um, use the emotions channel to communicate. And I found it really interesting kind of as an outsider and as a boomer as well, you know, where you and I don't necessarily sit down and talk about our feelings, right? Especially I in do. a work context. I do. Well, yeah, I know you <laughs> and, and I do. Talk really. afterwards. We do. <laughs> Only I need some whiskey. But anyway, so men don't cry, Steve. So, but yeah, I mean, people will post in that, like I'm feeling whatever, happy, or I'm feeling isolated, or I'm feeling like I need to take a mental health couple hours or whatever. And and I've, I've leveraged it. And some at first it was really more of an experiment to see what kind of responses I would get. And I would get responses back like, hey, let's jump on a call right now. I'd love to have some FaceTime with you and just kind of like talk about this or be a sounding board for you or whatever. Um, and so it's created these opportunities for connectivity, which ironically, I think just didn't exist as well prior to this crisis. Yeah, like I, I actually think communications, and this is going to sound really weird, but I actually think it's gotten better. And it, like, again, it's crisis focuses the mind like nothing else. Right. And it focuses people. And I know it's it's we're focused on a specific problem that exists right now in the world, but everybody's having to operate around that thing. It's it's almost like I've said this in the past, and this is a terrible thing to say, but wars often are a good thing. And, and it, I, that sounds terrible for me to say that because there's nothing, you know, wars are terrible. People die and they're terrible. Sure. Well, it I, I get focuses yeah. communities. It focuses people in ways that this doesn't happen under normal circumstances, right? We get into long debates, we get, you know, like if there's anything that, particularly when you look at the US and how divided the US has been for quite some time, and the US is not alone. I mean, there's lots of countries, UK is another one, it's incredibly divided. I, even in Canada, where we find we're, we're getting into very political discussions, but all that just goes out the window. It's like, we're in this together, right? And the raw humanity of how do we connect and how do we, so I almost feel like communications and, and sort of connectivity of people have actually gotten better. Can I just say one thing about, uh, I think, yeah, you know, Randy Matheson, right. On my team. Yeah. Randy and I were riffing on some ideas and, uh, we've been working with the folks over at Realize on some different things as well. And I know they're kind of trying to figure this out as well, but I'm like, it'd be amazing if when we're on these zoom calls, if we could have like a little realize emotional meter beside the person right where it's actually in real time it's capturing the person's emotion and i could then under because you're right i can't really read someone's emotion always even with their face because it's the video that screen still it's still something is missing from that like my eye doesn't pick it up yeah but could technology help with that so along with your slack idea it's uh, i i think that would be really cool so uh, let's talk a little bit about the biggest surprise. So you've gone through this. Is it the big takeaway here that it's surprising that we've been separated and yet our communication is somehow improving? Yeah. Is that 
I'd say that's been big. I'd say there's a there's probably a second one of that as well, where despite what I said earlier about it's difficult to just sort of kind of get out and maybe socialize little ideas that turn into big ideas. Or I would say, at least this is what we've seen with our team. And I've, I've even seen this with clients as well. And a lot of the client calls have been in is creativity increases during these times as well. Like it's interesting how fast people get resourceful when, you know, the scarcity of things and stuff, right? Like you just, you can't just go and get like, we, we've become such a, it's become such a habit. It's like, oh, I need that. I just go down to the local store or better yet, I just open up my phone. What am I saying? And I open it up on Amazon and I get whatever that thing is, right? So now people have to get really resourceful in terms of how they solve problems. So I've actually seen increasing creative thinking and even staff members who I would have never thought of bringing new ideas to the table around how we solve problems. Like they're like, hey, I was thinking about this thing and this is what, you know, like it, it, I've almost seen this creativity increase. And I think it's because, again, uh, you've had to become more resourceful, right? It's, you know, that scarcity thing increases creativity. So I think those are the two things I'd see. I love this point you're making, and I had not actually thought about that. When I was growing up, obviously pre-internet days, Jesus, I mean, maybe even pre-dinosaurs, you know, we didn't have access to everything. And so you had to use creativity in order to figure things out, like just how do I change a tire, which seems obviously stupid, but you get the point. Mm -hmm. And we've moved into this society where I can do anything and get anything quite literally delivered. And in that framework, we've leveraged that. And now all of a sudden, my dad, who's 82, and my wife... My dad calls my wife and says, I can't find any hand sanitizer on Amazon. So she looks and sure enough, you can't. It's like there is some on there and it's stupidly expensive and it has like an obscene shipping fee, right? Which I think is how they're getting around the price gouging, but whatever. So then they started doing research on how to make hand sanitizer. And they realized that the one of the ingredients is now scarce because other people have been doing the same thing. And so then it's about how do I make that ingredient? So we're basically creating this chemistry experiment, right? Um, That the whole family is now involved with on creating hand sanitizer, uh, which is this product that we feel like we need, right? So it's it's your point. Like, yeah, it's definitely getting us as a society more active as opposed to the passive. I can get it quick. Who's Yeah, and then you, you think of all the, you know, I mean, this is where technology and the internet does really amazing things where we can, A, you were talking about sort of like it's, well, we can't, I can't buy it on Amazon. So I've got to make, okay, what's the key ingredient? Oh, that key ingredient, I can't get that. So what's the, how do I make that ingredient? Like you, but you get all that from this unbelievable information that we have access to, right? So you have this powerful, and then we can then open up a video chat and very quickly put a group of, you know, our, family or friends or whatever together to experiment together on this stuff and solve these problems. Like that's what this purpose of all this stuff was, was meant to be right. Like it's like, if there's anything that I hope comes out of this is, and I know there's been, I know we're off track a little bit, but what I hope comes out of this is, you know, all the, the things that the Facebook and the Googles and like the FANG, right. You know, those organizations have been doing and, you know, really quite honestly been, you know, bad actors, if you will. And I've been uh, very outspoken about my thoughts around as, as a lot of people are, I use all these technologies. I believe in these technologies. I'm fascinated by them. I, I'm, a, I'm a champion of them, but 
I'm also a believer that we've just let them run wild. And right. I think this will, I think they're all going to come out way stronger out of this, but then what's going to happen is everybody's going to see the real good that can be done. And everybody's going to say, that's whatever, that's what they need to be focused on. Not selling me more stuff, but focused on really helping humanity move forward. Right. So that's, I, you know, that's probably, I'm being very altruistic, but I, I do believe that there will be good that comes out of this for sure. Well, I mean, I, I think you're right. And I think one of the unlocks here and Zoom has certainly picked up on it is if you give, then by give, I mean, in their case, they gave uh, Zoom away to institutional, educational institutions, then you wind up being able to take advantage of significant adoption of the, of the tool set, right? And so then it's a question of, okay, well, you know, what is the thing that the value that I can contribute to my constituents, my customers, uh, or employees or society and right. And, and then not necessarily, obviously I'm sure they have a long-term strategy, but not necessarily thinking about, okay, you know, my Q, how's this going to impact Q2 if I do this one thing, thinking about like Airbnb right now, which is a, you know, a severely impacted business. There's so much demand on the support side, given all the disruption to people's travels right now that, you know, there's a Everybody is focusing on, it doesn't matter who you are, you're focusing on helping out in, in support. And so I think that there's a, our society has really entered into this really neat time where we are thinking about humanity as opposed to just me or just my quota or just my whatever, you know, kingdom. Um, and with the understanding that if I can add value, then it, there is the selfish side of it too. Don't get me wrong, but it's just about like helping the rising tide principle or, or, you know, just helping everybody up and then knowing that it's Get everybody focused on a single mission. I mean, right. I've, I've done this many times in presentation and it's very old and cliche, but you know, when John F. Kennedy rallied everybody to go to the moon, I mean, that was right. That's exactly right. Example that everybody gets keenly focused and look at the, it wasn't even about getting to the moon. Like I, I know politically that's what they were, but wasn't even that all the outcomes, all the new innovations, all the new, the progress that happened during that time um, really is what I think really set the foundation of the United States and being such a unbelievably powerful innovator. And, you know, it's, yeah. it's just getting everybody focused, right? So. Well, let's switch gears. Sure. I've spent some time on your, on Davinia's website. I was blown away and loved the history blog post. So you've got this beautiful blog post that, I mean, your company's old, right? 21 years. Yep. Um, you've been there and it does a really nice job of, of articulating the journey and the people that were playing in that, in that context, right? It'd be great if you could talk to us about lesson learned, having gone through a couple economic crises um, as a business manager. Yeah. The, the key one is really it's the adaptability so you know every time we've gone through whether it was the dot-com bust which was kind of 2001 2002 or the the financial downturn which was 08 09 both of those times they forced us to adapt and you know adapt our business model adapt you know how we are operating it just it forced us to adapt right so like you think of when you talk about that, our journey really was, we started as a digital 
strategy, customer experience design firm. That's kind of where we got our roots and we were building things for other people. And then we evolved out of that organization because of 2001, 2002, when the dot-com boast, we, we were sort of had this kernel of this idea of like, hey, kind of cool if we could collect data because we were doing all these strategies and we had to do research, but could we do it online? Like, why do we have to use all these traditionals or could we do it? That's where asking Canadians and asking Americans was born out of, out of that. And, and we sort of, and we came out of that and said, that's, that's a real opportunity. Let's double down on that. Let's grow that. And then 08, 09, it was really about, Hey, we need to create more efficiency with the new organization. And how do we do that? And I'm not saying Methodify was totally paralleled with that, but a lot of what our clients were looking for was faster, easier, cheaper ways of doing things, which I think that's what we're facing right now in the MR spaces. Obviously, that's been a key thing for a while now, but we were forced to adapt and change. And you really have to be able to be able to be pretty nimble and really be able to I know everybody talks about pivoting. I don't like that word. I've, I've, I've never really liked the idea of, I get that's kind of what you're doing. I think it's more just how you evolve and, and how you're prepared to evolve and how you're open to evolving and how you surround yourself with people that have the same sort of thing. I, I was asked, I was on a panel, uh, the chair of the Canadian Marketing Association, and one, one of the things they asked me in, in one of our panel discussions was, this was middle of last year, I guess it was, what is that key thing I look at when I'm hiring new folks? And, and I said adaptability. Uh, it, it, to me, it's such a key thing. And I always ask people in interviews, that's one of my key questions is, you know, give me an example of how you've adapted something in your life, like how you've dealt with adversity. And that, those stories and those things, that the, how they accomplish that and how they deal with that, that to me is you can do anything and you can, you can accomplish anything. So but I say adaptability is a big thing. I will say too, Adam has a great little, it actually it's our values. He has what he calls the five P's. And like right now he's using the five P's constantly, which is passion, patience, perseverance, perspective, and people. And coming out of 08, 09, you know, clearly both of us were, you know, pretty beat up and, you know, made it through it. And I remember him and I were chatting one day and he said to me like, how do we just get this stuff out of my head? I said, dude, just go and sit down over the weekend and just, just write it down. Like just, just barf all over, all over your email or a piece of paper or whatever, like just get it out. And what came out of that was these sort of five, like these were the things were his core values. And I'd say that perseverance thing was huge. And he, and he just simply puts it like lead together as a team through the good and bad times. And we just keep it really simple. We don't, we're not trying to be goofy with, our values like that's that's been huge to help us through those times and i know that sounds so cliche oh, of course you got to be person like yeah persevere but it's funny how many people really don't persevere it's really really interesting you look at organizations that survive they're generally they have really strong leaders that can persevere through those really tough times there's a famous venture capitalist who uh once said there are no failed companies there are only failed teams. And mm. I think back on any success I ever had, and it was a function of basically just showing up the next day. And even as yeah. you said, right, it's when it's really hard, you just kind of like keep, you just keep plotting. There's not like this big master. There's, a, I mean, there might be a few companies like maybe Jeff Bezos or whatever, but I think generally speaking, 
it's just a matter of putting one foot in front of the other and and continuing the continuing the journey. And sometimes the, the journey is too hard and you need to stop, right? Because you just do and that's okay. But to your point, like the companies that actually make it are the ones that somehow have the magic and uh, continue to persevere. You said a key thing there. And again, it's inside of our, that value statement around lead together as a team for good and bad. And that team thing is so important because and that team could be a team of two, like it doesn't, but like, you're never going to be a hundred percent every day, but it's amazing when you have, we have a really, I think we have a great executive team right now. And uh, at any point in time, none, like none of the five of us are on the same page or, or feel a hundred percent every day, but we're willing to call each other out when we're not on the same page. And the other thing is we're willing to pick each other up. And I think that is so important in any organization, big teams, small teams, anything. If you're a manager, look around your team and are, are you really persevering through whatever you're doing and are you leading together as a team? I think that is so key to success. So Methodify fits as a what I consider to be this new tech. And what I mean by that is, and you've seen it probably in the last five years, but really in the last two years, it's just been gang, this space has been growing by gangbusters. And that is you productize methodologies instead of creating sort of the erector set or, you know, you've got all the pieces you need in order to do your project. Now you've got your, you know, you've got a system that is functionally pre-built to accomplish what it is that you want to do as a, as a researcher. Why did you guys decide to make that bet? Yeah, it's a great question. Kind of in two parts. Uh, I think a lot of this conversation is in two parts. One was there was sort of an aha moment, and then the other one is there's been a bit of a tipping point. And I don't. I think we're in the middle of a tipping point. Um, although I think we're in a bit of a maybe a bit of a pause right now due to what's going on. But the aha moment was we were working with one of our large brand clients, big bank, and we were we were running sort of just kind of traditional data collection projects, working with their research agency and their internal research organization. And what we sort of picked up on was these were, you know, they were the same kinds of things they were doing, you know, like at the time, I think it might've been concept tests or it was something like that. Anyway, it was relatively the same thing. And they were trying to create some kind of consistency and benchmarking and stuff. And then because we had built digital tools very quickly and things, we were able to create a little simple interface and allow them to sort of have this interface they could log in and use it and start. And it was a very rudimentary version of Methodify. And we actually called it Methodify at the time, but it was a very rudimentary version of it. And Zappy was probably a year, maybe two years in the marketplace at the time. So there wasn't a lot of organizations out there like us, but it was still in, I'll call it sort of proof of concept stage. But the, the aha moment for me was I was sitting in a meeting and the chief marketing officer turned to his team. We were sitting with all the different marketers, the heads of research. There was, it was a very large group of people and they were basically talking about the results of Methodify research that was done. And the CMO sort of turned to the group and said, I want everything to be Methodify. I want to Methodify, used it in a verb context. So that's why we use Methodify it all the time. He actually said, make sure you Methodify it. And that was the only thing he really said in the meeting. Like he wasn't even, like, to be honest, he wasn't even really that interested in the data. <laughs> that's what we're there for. What he was interested in is how fast we were able to turn this stuff over. 
And it really was because these were standardized and productized. So for us, that was a bit of the aha moment that we're all like this for sure uh, is something. And, I, you know, obviously one CMO saying that is not everybody saying it, but what ended up happening was our sales teams were out there talking to people and socializing with people and they were hearing the same feedback. That was the big thing. So that was kind of the aha moment. That was to your point, it was like five years ago. And then we started really doubling down and investing on standardizing this. And I will say the whole thing is a function of change management and transformation, which I know is way overused words right now, but it really is about that. Like organizations that depending on where they are in the curve of their sort of digital transformation cycle, some might be really far ahead and really willing to adapt. And this particular bank was actually quite far in that, that overall arc. Other organizations we're working with, they're not as far along and they have a hard time adapting standardized methodologies, right? They're just, everything is custom. You know, they just can't get their head around the fact that if you can standardize. The tipping point is a really interesting one. And I said, it's kind of the tipping point. We're sort of in the middle of it right now. When we first came out with Methodify, I actually got up in front of the Research Association in Canada at their annual conference and presented a little case study and talked about Methodify. And it was in a like a little side room, but it was packed, like it was jam-packed. And I kind of sheepishly got up there and and because I'm not a researcher by trade, like I I always feel a little maybe not quite as smart as the group of people that I'm around all the time, but it, you know, I presented, hey, this is what we're doing and, and this is what it's about. And one of the things I said at the end of the presentation, I said, you know, this idea of standardization and productizing methodologies really will take hold when it's not you, meaning you, the researchers running the projects, it's the marketers, it's the product folks, it's the innovation teams that are running their own research projects that you've set up. So you guys are facilitating. You're no longer the gatekeeper. You're the facilitator. And that concept behind it, and I, I kind of felt at the time that if they actually had tomatoes, I probably would have got thrown a bunch of tomatoes at me. But and right, you know, it it's such a I mean, it's such a power play. Oh, totally. It totally was. And I, and I got it and I could feel it and I could sense it. But that tipping point is happening now. We have one of our clients just trained uh, 60, 75 of their marketing team and their product teams on Methodify across both Canada and the US. And all the methodologies, they were put in place and they were vetted by the research department, set up properly, and they're still doing a lot of the custom work. But to allow it to really truly where there's more consumer insight aid across all the marketing programs, it really needed to get outside of that group. So that tipping point is happening now where it's not just locked in the research departments. It's actually getting out to the other groups inside of an organization. I mean, just to put it in, in full context, I had a conversation with 10 heads of insights, not on the podcast. None of them actually have ever been on the podcast, but on this subject of enabling automate or basically democratizing access to consumer yeah, insights. That's what it is. Exactly. And Across the board, I think there was one. So nine out of 10 were terrified at this concept because their concern was that the person wouldn't, the user wouldn't be educated on the backside uh, to make the right conclusion. But the real point is they're doing it anyway. Oh, and fine. whether they're using SurveyMonkey or whatever, right, platform. And 
And so you've, you've got to be able to get in front of that. You've got to be in the driver's seat so you can put the best practices around the application of the insights um, and the understanding of the insights. And so I, I really believe that like the, the training, so while the how to use the tools is really important, I think that there's going to be a big surge and big opportunity in, the, in our space to, if we take it, to move it into enablers through uh, knowledge sharing, right? So whether that's mm-hmm. like more educational certifications, that, that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's interesting. We we actually have started working on, it's funny you say the certification, because we actually purchased a qualitative chatbot called Chris last year. And we've been integrating, it was integrated inside of Methodify before, and we're, we're slowly now rolling it out as kind of a, a, either a standalone tool, standalone platform, it has its own brand, but it's really sort of helping automate more of the qualitative side of things. I actually see there's, there's really this blending between quant and qual, like, and I think you probably agree, like there's really the distinction between the two is getting kind of blurry. So, you know, we've been, we've been working a lot in terms of, you know, implementing that inside of organizations. Funny how people have embraced that in some cases, then even standardizing. And I'm like, you know, this is like a virtual interviewer. Like, like this is literally, <laughs> this is literally doing your job. You know that, right? And it's funny, they embrace it a little bit more, but but I think because the back end still needs a lot of interpretation of it, but also like make no mistake, this is not about every aspect of research, right? Like this is not high end problem solving. This is literally giving, if you think of the marketing process and you think of the five or six different gates that are marketing, like a typical, take a TV ad or whatever, the different stages of like this is literally just allowing along those stages through that creation process, a very quick thumbs up, thumbs down, give you a little insight. Is blue good? Is it red? It, it, that's what it is. It's, it's creating this and I get agile is so overused, but it's creating and it's allowing people to really truly be agile and connecting with their customers while they're developing new products, new marketing materials. Like it, it's not, it's not trying to solve the big big, crazy questions that, that a lot of sort of traditional research firms, they do, right? So to me, it's more adding to the market. It's not necessarily taking away from the market. It all guys, depends on your perspective. Last question. What is your personal motto? Uh, that's an easy one. Live by this for years. It's, it's not what you say, it's what you do. And I think in these times, I think what you do is more important uh, than what you say, even though we just spent the last hour having a great conversation. But I, I do think what matters at the end of the day is what you do. My guest today has been Steve Mast, President and Chief Innovation Officer at Delvinia. Steve, thank you very much for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. Thanks, Jamie. Everyone else, thank you so much for your time. I found a lot of value. I learned some stuff. If you did, please take time, share this on social, LinkedIn, Twitter. If you tag me, I will send you a t-shirt, I promise. Have a great rest of your day.